Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Back in 1987, uh, our second daughter, Noelle, was born. And unlike the birth of our first daughter, Joy, which was somewhat traumatic for us and ended up in a forceps delivery, um, Noelle's birth was rather uneventful. And, well, it's easy for the father to say. (laughs) Well, it was no pain at all. It was easy. Um, And so as grateful and excited parents, we very much anticipated uh, smooth sailing. Unfortunately, several days after taking Noelle home from the hospital, um, her condition deteriorated, and she just began to lay there crying weakly, listless and lifeless, and then she stopped feeding altogether and wouldn't nurse. And before we knew it, uh, before we knew it, we find ourselves right back at the hospital admitting our daughter. And it was really hard, even as a doctor, um, watching my colleagues poking and prodding her. And, uh, you know, despite the number of spinal taps that I had witnessed and done on little babies, as a father, uh, it was such a different perspective. And, and I could barely bring myself to watch as the doctor stuck that huge needle into my daughter's spine. Um, after a lot more testing, uh, the doctor finally approached Betty and I um, with a look that I had come to recognize all too well working in the hospital. Uh, the concerned look of a doctor that's about to give some bad news uh, to the patient. And um, the doctor basically said this to Betty and I. To, to Betty and me. Um, we're a little worried that your daughter might have been born with a defect in her heart. And that's what's wrong. Uh, I tried to put on a brave face for Betty, uh, but inside, panic struck as images of these deathly sick babies came into my mind from my pediatrics rotations and understanding what can happen to these children. Um, You know, up to that point in my life, I felt like, you know, there were always challenges that I had to face in my life. But, you know, as sort of a a natural-born problem solver, I always felt like it was something within my realm to tackle and to fix and to deal with. And, yeah, sure, this is going to be rough, but I can get through this. I know I have the resources to fight through this. And so for the most part, these challenges felt like nothing more than minor speed bumps. And what, in essence, if I was really honest, was a fairly smooth road in my life. But this challenge took my breath away. It knocked me down. And I always sort of saw my temperament as a pretty easygoing guy. But when I got that news from that doctor that day, I never realized how intensely and desperately 
I could want something in my life as I wanted for my daughter to know a healthy life. I mean, I never knew desire like that was in me until I realized it could be robbed from me. And yet in that same moment of intense desire, I never felt so small, so totally and utterly helpless to make that desire come true. I knew that all of the wanting and wishful thinking in the world wasn't going to fix this. I couldn't will this to be better. I didn't have the resources. Now, thankfully, after a pretty rough journey that further on with uh, consultations with pediatric cardiologists and ultrasounds and a whole battery of tests, and, and after tracking this thing for almost two years, uh, the pediatric cardiologist finally gave us the clear and said that we think Noelle is going to be okay and she's going to live a long and healthy life. But I want to ask you this. Have you ever experienced a challenge like this in your own life? Have you, in other words, ever been confronted with an obstacle so great that you knew in that moment, in that instant, that you could do nothing about it? And have you ever wanted an outcome so badly, so desperately, and yet felt so powerless to do anything about it? This is the situation that the centurion in our story faced as he helplessly watched his servant dying in front of his eyes. We're told in the Bible that the servant was, quote, highly valued by his master. Now, I don't know how you read that, but you can read it in a way that makes it basically sound like it was describing the slave's economic worth, right? I mean... I could get a lot of money for this guy, and I don't want him to die. But if you look at the original wording that is used there in the Greek, it's actually a word that's not so much describing economic value as much as an emotional attachment, meaning that this slave, this servant, was precious to the centurion. He loved this guy. He had affection for him, and so he was concerned for his health. This is the first clue that we're given that the centurion was no ordinary man. The level of concern that he showed for his slave boy was incredibly unusual. Aristotle basically described slaves in those days as living tools. That's all they were, living tools. The Roman writer Varro basically stated that the only difference between a slave and an ox and a cart was that the slave can speak. That was it. That was the view of slaves in the days of Jesus. But to the centurion, the servant wasn't just a piece of property. He was someone that he cared deeply about. But all of his affection and concern could do nothing to save his servant's life. He was powerless. Centurions were military officers in charge of a hundred soldiers. And in those days of Jesus, they were very powerful and very wealthy men. They commanded a salary at least 20 times that of an average soldier. They were rich. But all of his power and all of his money were worthless in the face of this challenge of a dying servant boy. 
It's interesting that the centurion doesn't come directly to Jesus, but he sends a contingent of Jewish elders to speak on his behalf and ask Jesus for help. This is the second clue that we're given that the centurion was no ordinary man. Because as a Gentile military officer, these Jewish leaders would have had very little incentive to help out this guy. He was the enemy. If the normal relations existed, he ought to have been despised by these Jewish elders. But in verse 4, we're told that these Jewish leaders, quote, pleaded earnestly with Jesus to help this guy out. This wasn't just a token, all right, because you could kill us, we'll do this for you, type of a thing. They actually begged Jesus, please do this for him. What caused these Jews to act in this extraordinary way on the behalf of a Gentile officer, the opposing armies? Well, we're told the answer in verses 4 to 5. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. In other words, unlike the other Gentiles who ruled over them, this centurion showed sympathy to Israel. He not only lets us practice our religion without harassing us, but he even built our synagogue. I mean, that is an extraordinary act that would have been unbelievably costly. But this man single-handedly built our synagogue in Capernaum for us. And so as the elders declared, he loves our nation. He loves our people, Jesus. You and I, Jews, he loves us. In other words, the centurion is one of the good guys. He's on our side, Jesus. And so the bottom line conclusion of the Pharisees was this. This man deserves to have you do this for him. I think the thinking sort of went like this. Think about all the random people that you help all the time, Jesus. You know, these frankly nobodies, these discards, these homeless people, these beggars. And you're indiscriminately healing them willy-nilly. And here is a guy that comes to you, no ordinary man. And in essence, their argument is this. If you are willing to help all these deadbeats and nobodies that are confronting you on the streets of Galilee, how could you possibly say no to a worthy man like this? He deserves your help if anybody deserves it at all in this world. This legalistic way of viewing God's favor demonstrated by these elders was so pervasive in Jesus' days. The basic thinking goes like this. There are good people in this world that deserve God's favor. And there are unworthy people who don't. And you know, in truth, I think there are a lot of us, even in the church, that think in the same way. Don't we? I mean, when a tragedy strikes, a family that is faithfully serving in the church and seems to be so genuine in their love for God, don't we think this in our heads a lot? Of all the people, why did it happen to them? I mean, don't we think like that? 
of all the people that this could have happened to, why them? They don't deserve this. They don't deserve this to happen to them. But what are we really saying when we think like this? That out of some karmic sense of justice, some people are more deserving than others to experience a carefree life free of tragedy? That some people deserve a better life because they're good people? I think another way that we demonstrate this view of earning God's favor is the way that we often try to bargain with God when bad things happen in our lives and we need him to fix it. I got to confess, it was hard for me not to go there as a gut reaction when the doctor said, your daughter may have a life-threatening congenital heart abnormality. It was hard for me not to think in my deepest recesses of my heart, God, how can you do this to me? Look at all the sacrifices I've made for you. All of the mission trips that I've been on. Everything that I've done for you all of these years. And in all this time, did I ever ask anything of you? I mean, this is genuinely how I thought in my head is, God, let's be real here. Don't you agree that I have been a pretty low-maintenance disciple up to now? <laughs> I mean, there are definitely high-maintenance people in the church. And I have never been one of them. I'm a good worker. And I work and I work and I work and I never ask anything of you. Never. So can you just throw me a bone this one time? And can you do this for me? Can you, God? I mean, is it really too much to ask after everything I've done for you? What am I really saying to God when I use this line of reasoning against him? God, you owe me one. I'm one of the good guys. I'm on your side. I deserve a break. But when our demands arise out of this attitude of entitlement and a demand for justice even, the Bible says, you don't really understand what you're asking for. You don't. Because if you want to go down that road, you know where that road leads you? This is the road it leads you, as Paul says in Romans 3, verses 10 to 11. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. In other words, what the Bible tells us is this. If you want to speak in the language of deserving something, all we deserve is punishment for our rebellion against God. It's interesting that despite the elders' messed up theology, in his mercy, Jesus decides to still follow them and go heal the centurion's servant. But here is where the story takes another interesting turn. Before they even reach the centurion's house, another delegation comes and meets him of the centurion's friends. And when they get near the house, this is what it says in verses 6 to 7. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. 
That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. I want to tell you something. If you read all four Gospels, the rest of the New Testament, there are only two times recorded when the Bible tells us that Jesus was amazed. Now, I don't think that really captures our imagination very much because we've abused that word amazed. And we've, in essence, emptied it of any real meaning. I mean, every time something that we like happens, don't we say, oh, that was amazing. Like, first time we ride a new roller coaster at Six Flags. Oh, that was amazing. But were we really amazed? (laughs) I mean, by definition, to be amazed at something means that there was an element of surprise, of being confronted with something that was so utterly unexpected that we are literally in shock. That is what the word amazement literally means. It's like this. Once, as a doctor, I was seeing this patient who I diagnosed with a viral upper respiratory infection, told her, rest, fluids, Tylenol for the fever, you'll be fine in five to seven days. She insisted that she needed antibiotics, but I still held my ground and refused to give her a prescription. This is where things changed. She stood up out of the exam table and approached me with this menacing gesture. And she began to scream at the top of her lungs, swearing at me with every four-letter word that she can imagine how she was going to kill me. And she was... And then she started talking about lawsuits and how she's going to go home and die and her husband is going to sue me and everything. She was so off the wall that my nurse burst into the room and asked if he needed to call security. And every other doctor and every other nurse was standing in the hallway (laughs) staring at what in the world I was doing to this woman. I almost peed in my pants. I want to tell you this. I was amazed, okay? I was amazed at the hostility of this woman. That is the proper usage of the word amazed, okay? I mean, I was freaking out. I was scared out of my pants. But if we understand amazement in that way, it's very strange to apply that to Jesus, isn't it? To God. Because if amazement requires an element of surprise, God, how does God become surprised? God ought to be the most jaded individual in the universe. I think this is where we don't take seriously the incarnation of Jesus. As Paul tells us to the Philippians, Jesus voluntarily emptied himself of his divine attributes, including his all-knowingness. So that he became a man who is capable of being surprised. As I said, there are only two recordings in all of Scripture that tell us that God was surprised. The first one is in Mark chapter 6, verse 4 to 6. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. 
amazed. Despite everything that these Nazarenes had heard and seen with their own eyes and ears, their level of unbelief shocked Jesus. How could you be in this much denial that God is in your midst? He was shocked. He was dumbfounded. He was amazed at their lack of faith. And the second recording of Jesus' amazement is in our story today. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. This has raised the interest of a lot of Bible scholars to ask the question, what was so amazing about this guy's faith that it blew Jesus away? That it shocked him. That it surprised him. Well, I think the first aspect of the centurion's faith was his humility. If you look in verses 6 to 7, he was not far off from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. What a contrast this man's attitude was compared to the attitudes of the elders that says he deserves it. His own confession was, I don't deserve it. I don't. As a Gentile, he understood what God's own people could not. That none of us are worthy of God's grace and mercy. You see, it's not wrong to ask God of things when we have a need. But we need to be oh so careful about the heart with which we ask them. Do we come to God with an attitude of entitlement as though he owes us something? Or do we come to him with the brokenness and humility of someone who knows that he doesn't deserve God's favor but can only receive it by his grace? To come to God with humility and ask, is to come without demanding, without any attempt to manipulate God. And that manipulation issue is so tricky, isn't it? Because that desire to manipulate God is so strong in every single one of us. And I want to ask you this question here. How do you know whether humility is real? Because if you believe that humility is a necessary ingredient for me to get an answer from God, there is this enormous temptation to at least put on the facade of humility. When in truth, it is nothing more than disguised manipulation. I grovel because that's what he demands. How do you know when humility is real? Well, I would say this. You know it's real by how you react if God doesn't give you the thing that you want, don't you? That's how you know whether humility is real. In other words, do you humbly accept his no's as much as you give glory to him for the yeses? Do you? Do you as much accept the no's that he gives you as much as you rejoice in the yeses and the positive answers to prayer? Or you, do you turn on him in anger and disappointment when he doesn't give you what you want. 
You know, there is always a danger in this asking of treating God as nothing more than an impersonal power or a force in the universe. And somehow we need to tap into that force in order to get what we want. But I think one of the things that God is saying to us is, do you even know that everything we ask is what we really need in our lives? I mean, are we really all that wise all the time? It's okay to ask God for the things that we want. But in that asking, in other words, we let God be God and come before him with that humble posture that understands that truth like that centurion understood that day. There are no demands here. There are no expectations that you have to do this for me. But I come to you humbly and ask. Jesus was also amazed at the centurion's faith because he understood that the basis of it was Jesus' authority. In verses 7 to 8, But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now let me say this. We have to understand that this man was living in a time where the prevailing worldview was to see power as magic. It was a very superstitious view of the world in which power was in essence equated to magic. In other words, it was all about the ritual. It was all about saying the right words or doing the right things. If Jesus only says the right incantations or if he only touches me in the right place, you know, that's sort of the idea, like, if I just can reach out and touch his cloak of a holy man, I will be healed. It's the kind of magical thinking that existed in Jesus' day. But the centurion rightly understood that the power was not in the ritual, but it was in the person of Jesus Christ himself. In other words, his confidence was in the authority that Jesus play, displayed over everything in his ministry, over demons, over disease, even over weather and natural phenomena. And so he says, it is in that I put my trust that my servant can be healed. And so in essence, this is what he tells Jesus through his messengers. I feel so unworthy for you to be in my presence. And I know that you don't have to come into my house. You don't even have to see my servant to heal him. There doesn't have to be any of this kind of stuff and waving of stuff and, ooh, you know, and whatever else. I know, Jesus, you don't have to do any of that. All I, God, Jesus, just say the word. Just say the word. And there is every confidence in my heart that he will be healed. You know, I wonder how many times our quote-unquote faith actually resembles magic and voodoo and superstition a lot more than it resembles the confidence that the centurion had in who Jesus was. Let me actually propose a scenario for you that I'm going to guess is true for most of us. Have you ever prayed for something and you didn't get it and the logic ensued in your head. If only I had more faith, I might have gotten it. Have you ever thought that way? You prayed and you prayed and you prayed for something and it didn't happen. And the thinking goes like this. If only I had more faith, I might have gotten it. Now, I'm going to say this. That may be true. That may be true. 
But what exactly do we mean when we say that? Um, I think for most of us, what it really means is this. I must have done something wrong. I, I messed up the procedure, the ritual. Um, and we, in essence, begin to think of faith like a code we have to crack, you know? So many dials, so many buttons, so many combinations. Or it's like a formula I have to figure out. And I screwed it up. I messed it up. So I got to try again. And we can get so superstitious about this. Maybe I didn't phrase things in the right way when I prayed. The, did I pray to Jesus or did I pray to the Father? I'm not even sure. And uh, who am I supposed to pray to? Maybe he's really angry. He's offended. I prayed to the wrong person of the Trinity. Maybe there was not enough groveling in my tone. And so he thought I was kind of proud. So I have to change my tone. Maybe it even goes like this. Maybe it's because of that bad thing I did a few days ago. And what in the world was I thinking? How could I think that God is going to help me when I've done the thing like that? So I'm going to wait it out a few days and uh, <laughs> build some distance from that sin. And, <laughs> and in the meantime, I'm going to have quiet time every morning. And then I'm going to try again next week when I think I'm in better footing with God. Or, frankly, for a lot of us, even as Christians, I think faith gets relegated to nothing more than the power of positive thinking. If I only believe hard enough that this thing is really going to happen, God will see that I have faith and do it for me. Aren't there are a lot of us that think like that, huh? If I only believe this thing is really going to happen, then I will have great faith and God shall do it. Is that really how the Bible describes faith? I want to say this. To have faith is not to trust in an outcome, but to trust in the person of Jesus Christ. To have faith is not to trust in an outcome, but to trust in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, the confidence in our prayer doesn't come from the fact that I feel I have done enough to deserve God to throw me a bone. Or the fact that I've gone through the right rituals or done everything that he asked of me. But it rests in the belief that God has supreme authority and power over all things and that he is the one who is for me, not against me. In other words, that God, I believe that God is both able and willing to help me in my time of need. And to say that he is for me, to say that he is willing, does not mean that everything I ask he's going to give to me. It doesn't. But it means that whether he chooses to deliver me from that storm or give me the strength to endure it, I have the confidence that he always has my best interest in his heart. And that is faith, brothers and sisters. Not the power of positive thinking, but the belief that God is able and that he is for me. As Paul says to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose.
doesn't mean he gives us everything we want. But everything he does in our life is for our good. And the one who stands by faith is the one that can believe this no matter what you go through in life. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary in the early era of the modern missions movement, really went through a pretty dark time as a young missionary in China. And he realized that he was being stretched in every direction to the limits of his faithfulness. He tried so hard to be faithful to God. But he realized that he did not have the resources within him to live the life that this missionary life demanded. And he tried every trick in his bag. He went into intense and prolonged periods of prayer and did all of the spiritual disciplines and read the Bible incessantly, but none of this seemed to help. He was continually confronted by his inadequacies and his struggles with sin. And it was such a dark season in his life until one day through the wise counsel of a friend, he finally realized what he was doing wrong in his struggle to generate faith within his heart. And Taylor writes in his own words of this discovery, how do we get faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but by resting in the faithful one. That's how I grow my faith. Not by trying to generate this force in me that I might believe, but by fixing my eyes on the faithful one. And out of that comes a confidence with which I dare approach the throne of grace and ask. And whatever answer I receive, I accept with humility and trust. John Orberg says this, and we'll close with this. One day, and this is the truth, everything we hope for will eventually disappoint us. You know, that centurion servant was healed that day, but you know what? He still died, like all of us. You know, one day he did die. It was like, oh, he's 70 years old. Heal him, Jesus, you know. Ooh, 140. Oh, heal him. 200, you know. No, the guy died, like all of us. Every circumstance, every situation that we hope for is going to wear out, give out, fall apart, melt down, go away. Hoping can break your heart. That is why we carry one big hope, the secret hope you don't even dare to breathe. That when you have lost the something you were hoping for, and it might have been really, really big, there is a someone you can put your hope in. The whole testimony of the scriptures points to this one man, points to a God, not because he will be able to give us this thing or that thing we were hoping for, because that's always going to give out eventually, but because he is the one we can put our hope in. Amen. Let us pray. I want to return to the question that I asked at the beginning of the message. Have you ever found in yourself a desire so great that it even surprised you of something that you wanted so intensely that you didn't know you could want for something that badly? 
and yet at the same time feel so utterly helpless and powerless to do anything about it. And when we find ourselves in that place in our lives with intense desire and yet utter hopelessness to change circumstances by our own strength, all of those old superstitious mechanisms in us want to kick in desperately, pleading, bargaining with God. Haven't I lived a good life? Haven't I done enough for you to deserve this one little thing? We treat God like he's some kind of impersonal force that we need to manipulate. Turn the right dials, push the right buttons, say the right incantations, live the right life. I'm going to earn this thing. And then maybe God will hear and he will answer. I think what God is saying through the story of the centurion is faith doesn't work like that. Faith is not manipulation. Faith is not superstition. Faith is not the power of positive thinking. It's not imagining a future so that that will come about. Like so much of the garbage that is preached in our world today. It rests solely in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the whole point of the Gospels. Not to teach us how to live ethically and live good moral lives, but it is to introduce us to the God of the Bible who so loved the outcast, the widow, the orphan, that that trembling leper could come and say, are you willing to make me clean? And Jesus reached out and touched this dirty, filthy man and said, I am willing, be clean. I make you whole. Do you understand that that is the God that you and I worship? God wanting us to have a glimpse of his heart sent his own son to become a man. And the man that he became was so loving, so kind, so gentle, so accepting. They hated him because they say he eats with sinners. Look at the company that he keeps. But God is saying to us, that is my heart. That is my heart. So come to me, ask, seek, knock. Put away your games of manipulation or trying to earn anything from me. You want to get what you deserve. All you deserve is punishment. But I want to show you mercy. I want to show you my love. And you know, there are some things that you are asking for that I can't give you. Because it's not really as much as you want it so badly what you really need in your life right now. And I know you hate me for it. And I know you're so angry and frustrated and resentful because you just don't understand. And in your limited understanding, your only interpretation of that is, why doesn't God love me? Here is the substance of faith. To believe in a God that even in his silence, even in his nose, is this unbelievably loving God who would not move heaven and earth and give up his own son to be tortured on a cross because of his love for us. As Paul says, if God would give us his own son, what would he deny us? Would he not give you every good thing that you need in your life? So my prayer for us this day, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that our faith may grow as we look to the Son. And keep our eyes fixed on him who has demonstrated the very heart of God by the life that he lived before us. And as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
May that grant to us the confidence like the centurion to come before the throne of grace and dare ask bold prayers and say, God, help me, help me. I don't even feel like I fully understand what I need in the season of my life. But take control. Work in my life. And do what you need to do. Would you just pray that prayer as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response? From this moment, as we leave this place to enter our lives, may God and the person of Jesus Christ become so present and real in our lives. That when we ask, we will ask him. And our faith will be rooted in him. And that we will not have our confidence in our record of faithfulness to him. But in his unshakable and relentless faithfulness towards us. May he grant that we would always have humility. A deep humility. That is born out of trust in him. May he help us to acknowledge his great authority. That we would never use him as a means to our ends, but we would trust in his purposes for us. And because of the word preached, and because the spirit is applying it deeply in our hearts, may faith grow in the lives of each person gathered here. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.